Crossway Church Sermon Audio. Now, when you were in school, what kind of student were you? Some of us don't want to answer that. I understand that 100%. Some students are all over it. They're driven to do well and achieve. And there's all manner of impulses that motivate them to do that. Other students, they're not that motivated to achieve. And there are other motivations there for them. What kind were you? Think of it for a moment. Think of a student who doesn't do their lessons on time. They don't do their homework. They don't do their lessons. What happens when a student doesn't do their lesson on time? Well, they fall behind because the concepts they missed are necessary building blocks to understanding the next concept because they build one concept on the next. And ultimately, it undermines their ability to comprehend the subject that they're studying. And now they have to work twice as hard to come up to speed and understand the subject. My father would capture this in a simple uh, statement of logic. If If you have to turn it in anyway, you may as well turn it in on time. And that was... Uh, to give full disclosure, that was um, counsel I didn't always take. But he's right, and I know it, and sometimes I say it to my children as well. Now, you may remember that we just finished chapter 35 of Isaiah, and we saw that chapters 13 to 35 were lessons in trust. They were lessons. They were lessons building one on the next, lessons in trust. God's teaching His people to trust Him. He's always teaching us to trust Him. And something also to remember is what happened just prior to chapter 13. You might not remember. It was a while ago. It was months ago we were in those chapters. But prior to chapter 13, we saw a story of King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was also afraid of Assyria. And Isaiah called on King Ahaz of Judah. He told him, trust God. But Ahaz failed. He was trying to buy help. He was buying mercenaries. He was trying to buy help from Assyria. And Ahaz failed to trust God. And therefore, Judah failed to trust God. And we had, after his failure to trust God, we had all these lessons in trust straight through chapter 35. And now, on the other end of chapter 35, we're going to get in these next few chapters an example, not of not trusting God, but of trusting God. And guess who gives us the example of trusting God? Ahaz had a son who becomes king of Judah. His name's Hezekiah. And so Ahaz and Hezekiah serve as bookends. They serve as examples, not trusting God, trusting God in the book of Isaiah. And all in between are lessons of trust. You see how important this is to God and how he wants us to get this? You see how his scriptures are theologically ordered so that you and I grow and learn as we immerse ourselves in them and pursue the word of God. And so now it's all written down for us. And you see, Judah never had to fail to trust God at the beginning. They did fail. When Isaiah prophesied to Ahaz, they failed. But they could have learned the lesson then. They could have been good students. They could have spared themselves so much trouble. They could have had peace in God. I'm not saying they wouldn't have faced any troubles in the world. I'm saying they would have had peace in God. Like He wants for us. But they were learning And we're no better. And that's why their example is so powerful. That's why we need it. Because we're still learning too, aren't we? To trust God day by day. And that's the lesson for today. Let's learn to trust now. God is teaching you. He's teaching me. Lessons in trust today, in this moment, in our lives, in our victories, in our triumphs, in our changes, in our challenges, in our hardships, and the things that we take for granted. He's teaching us to trust Him. In the day-to-day, in the things we do every day, in the things we do once in a while, it's all a lesson of trust in the things that happen to us. In the things that other people do and other people say, in COVID, in, in employment, in the, when the small business closes down and when people are laid off or when we get an opportunity because of COVID. In all of that, God is teaching us lessons of trust. It's all a lesson in trust. And therefore, may I have that first slide? Therefore, learn to trust the Lord. Maybe I need to press this. There we go. Thank you. 
Therefore, learn to trust the Lord now. Now. You're the student. God's the teacher. He's giving the lessons. Learn the lesson now so that you're able to trust Him always. Learn to trust Him now so you're able to trust Him always. This is part of how our Lord is transforming us. He's teaching us now. He's teaching us today. He's teaching us this week so that no matter what comes, our instinct, our impulse is to what? Trust Him. That Instead of having to, to reach out there and put it on and, and, and wrestle for it, instead of that, it comes out of us. It's our instinct. It's our impulse. Wouldn't it be so exalting of, to Christ if our response to bad news was, I wonder what the Lord is up to today. I don't know, but I can't wait to see it. It might take a while, but I know He is. And I can't wait. Rather than, here we go again, I never win. God never does anything good for me. All He ever prophesies or says to me is bad things. How bad is, how badly will this work out this time? You see, trusting God changes everything. It even changes how we engage those things that we need to trust Him in. So let's get into the text. First of all, providential lessons. Providential lessons. Now, we do have a bit of reading to do here today, but it may seem easy because Isaiah 36 is a rather dramatic story. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. Are you ready for that? Can you follow along? And, uh, and, I, and I recognize it's long, and sometimes it's not the best approach when you're preaching, but it's God's Word, and I, I, I love to make sure that we touch all the bases when it comes to God's Word. I hope you appreciate that too. Let's start with Isaiah chapter 36. I'm going to read for you the entire chapter. Here we go. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder. And the Rabshakeh said to them, Say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, on what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power for war? And whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. But if you say to me, we trust in the Lord our God. Is it not he whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and to Jerusalem, You shall worship before this altar? Come now, make a wager with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you are able to part to, on your part to set riders on them. How then can you repulse a single captain among the least of my master's servants when you trust in Egypt for chariots and for horsemen? Verse 10. Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come up against this land to destroy it? The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to, Rab to, to, uh, said to the Rabshakeh, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. But the Rabshakeh said, Has my master sent me to speak these words to you and your master and to you and not to the men sitting on the wall who are doomed with you to eat their own dung and drink their own urine? Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, Do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. For thus says the king of Assyria, Make your peace with me and come out to me. 
then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of you of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern until I come and take you away to a land like your own, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, The Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvarim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word. For the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. First, a bit of context. Judah's lived under the threat of Assyria for many years now, decades, probably about four decades or more. Sennacherib is the fourth Assyrian emperor that has threatened them. Each of the prior emperors is coming down from the north to to the south through Palestine, making gains all the way. And at this point, they're really taking over the Philistines. And because we're talking decades of threat, let me ask you, what happens when you face a long period of threat? When you worry about something, right away you're so worried about it, right? And what happens when it's like, well, yeah, that's there, that's there, but it's never, it's never happened, it's never happening, right? It's never happening. So what happens? It begins to seem like less of a threat, doesn't it? And people go on with their lives and they live just like normal. Do you remember 9-11? Do you remember how we were on the edge of our seats? Do you remember the, uh, the, the, the National Guard, armed guards standing at places like Independence Hall in Philadelphia? I never saw that in my life before 9-11. Do you remember that sense of alertness, of awareness? And then little by little went away. It doesn't feel like a threat anymore. That can happen to us. And I don't, seem, I don't mean so much in our world as I mean that is true, of course. But I mean in our souls. We can let sin linger. We can let unbelief linger. We don't trust the Lord as we ought to. And the years go by and we end up thinking that's the norm. And we, we, we let things into our lives that shouldn't be there. But rather than being alarmed by it and dealing with the threat and crying out to God... We just let it stay as if it's never going to really break in and do us any damage. Oh, but, but it will. But it will. One of the fascinating things about getting older is, is watching the choices, the decisions that some people made 20 years ago and how those come to fruition now. You know, we're going to see that in Sennacherib's life at the end of this message. Something's going to happen to him 19 years after this time. No, brothers and sisters, let us deal with our souls today. Let us learn the lessons today. Sennacherib had taken all of Judah, 46 forts, soon to be 47 forts. All that is left is the city of Jerusalem. And the city that Sennacherib is working on at the moment is Lachish, the gateway of the Philistine plain, with the next target being Jerusalem. And Sennacherib is already looking past his present prey. He's looking at the big prize in the region, which is Jerusalem. And it's a lot cheaper and a lot easier if Jerusalem surrenders. So he starts to play psychological warfare, right? He's looking at that big prize So he sends that high officer with a huge army, basically a field commander, to do his work. And this is the real test. It's a real thing. Now all the times that Judah could have been learning to trust the Lord, now it comes down to it. Here's this enormous army. Judah's decimated. Enormous army within days of Jerusalem. Maybe even a day's march to Jerusalem. And did you notice when we read this how much the Rabshakeh talked about trust? Did you notice, do you have any question as to whether we're on the right track with this whole trust idea? Did you notice how much he talked about trust? On behalf of Sennacherib, the emperor, 
the Rabshakeh told Judah that they shouldn't trust their own strategy or military ability. Because mere words aren't power. And, and Judah can't even muster a couple thousand guys to put on horses to ride in the cavalry. So they shouldn't trust their own military strategy or ability. And they certainly shouldn't trust Egypt. The Rabshakeh claims that they're powerless before Assyria. That Egypt, though it once was a great power and still had a great reputation, he says they're, they're like a worthless staff. Like if you took a walking staff and you, you tried to lean on it, and guess what? It was unfaithful to you. It was worthless. It was rotted. It broke. You, the moment you put your full weight on it, it breaks. And guess what? The way it breaks, it breaks with a shard on it. And you end up piercing your own hand or your arm because you, you fell off of it and it, you landed on that. You rely on them, you'll hurt yourself, he's saying. And by the way, this is true because history is going to tell us. We're, if you follow, if you pay attention to the text, you're even going to see. Assyria is going to be called away to deal with Egypt, which is now Cush. Cush really took over Egypt and they became more Egyptian than the Egyptians. And they're going to just like brush them aside. They're, they're, they're a non-factor in these wars. Egypt is not what they used to be. And so he says, don't, don't trust Egypt. And, and you know what else? Don't trust the Lord. Why would you trust the Lord? Why would you trust Yahweh? They had studied their enemies. Don't trust, the, don't trust Yahweh. Yahweh's the one that told me, Sennacherib is saying, to come and destroy this land. And by the way, there's truth to that. We know that God providentially sent Assyria. And you know what he's saying? Don't trust Hezekiah, the king. He says, isn't Hezekiah... The one who took away all these wonderful little sanctuaries, these shrines to, to the Lord, you know, the high places and the, every nook and cranny and little cave and wherever to put a little shrine. He took them all away right now. See, he studied his enemy, but he doesn't know Yahweh at all. Because Yahweh wanted the people of God to only worship him in Jerusalem as part of what it meant that God's holy, that you, you worship him in the way that he is to be worshipped. It's still true today. We only come to him through Jesus Christ. And so, but he puts that out there. He says, doesn't that look, that seems unspiritual, doesn't it? It seems like anti-religious. It seems anti-God. It almost seems atheist. He took away all these sanctuaries. Don't trust him. But when we really get to it is verse 18 and following, because there the Rabshakeh, speaking again on behalf of Sennacherib, says, don't trust the Lord. Sennacherib saying, because I've destroyed all the gods of the enemies that I've taken on. And Yahweh's no different. The Lord's no different. You see what's happening here? Sennacherib and his arrogant, rebellious, unbelieving pride thinks he's bigger than God. He's more God than God. What a fool. And he will learn that. And the question here becomes, will Hezekiah trust the Lord? What about you and me? Think of your situation. As we go through this message, you think about your situation. Are you trusting the Lord today? Are you trusting Him? He wants you to learn the lessons. Here's a great example today. Let's see what happens. Isaiah chapter 37. I'm going to read for you now verses 1 through 7, okay? So Isaiah 37, 1 through 7. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him 
so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. I want to point out Hezekiah here too. Do you see what Hezekiah did? Let's break it down. Hezekiah was honest in his sorrow. Honest in his sorrow. He did not pretend like nothing was happening. And this is a phenomena that I have seen and still amazes me. And I'm not saying I'm not guilty of it as well because we're all, we can all be hypocritical, can't we? But it is fascinating to behold when someone, because of their own sin is experiencing the consequences of their own sin and in the midst, in the very thick of the consequences of their own sin is blind to the entire thing. And what they're most concerned about is not the consequences of their own sin and not their own sin. What they're most concerned about is is making others believe that everything is great in their life. Now, that's a tragic place to be. I don't think it gets any more self-deceptive than that, does it? And frankly, if we can't be honest with ourselves about what we've done and what we're experiencing because of what we've done, well, how are we ever going to get to repentance? Can we be at least that honest? And when we face the consequences for our sin, it's because of our sin. And that's what you see Hezekiah doing here. He knows Israel's sin. He knows Judah's sin. He knows their unbelief. That's why he took down all those high places. He knows their lack of trust. He knows Isaiah's prophecy. He knows his father's lack of trust. He knows the, the treachery that's upon him. He sees it. And that's why, that's why he's tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth because this terrible situation that's upon them has been prophesied to them. This is God's word to them. If they fail to trust him, more hardship comes upon them and he knows it and so he repents of it he knows that Judah's not righteous Job suffering for their righteousness he knows that they've been unfaithful and so he repents and we need to see this in our lives sometimes don't we we have to see it and we have to own it and we have to say it we have to be honest with ourselves I think sometimes you and I pretend to be righteous, Job, suffering because of all of our righteousness. No matter what anyone else says, we just know how good we are. Righteous Job is pretty righteous. Most of us do not attain to that. And sometimes instead of pretending to be righteous, Job, and acting like everything's so great, We need to put on some sackcloth and weep and mourn and repent. And so Hezekiah goes, not only does he repent in sorrow, but he goes to the house of the Lord. What's he doing at the house of the Lord? He's calling on the name of the Lord. It's just prayer. It's prayer. He goes to the temple. He goes goes to the house of the Lord so that he can be in God's presence. Where do we go? We go to Jesus. We go to Jesus. He's the temple. We go to the church because in Christ we're the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? And we pray. We pray. Do we know how to do this? We pour out our heart before the Lord. When you come here on Sunday morning, it's a great time to pour out your heart to the Lord. When you're singing praises to Him, pour out your heart to to Him. Afterward, when you're seeking prayer or when you're in fellowship and when you're daily quiet time, you pray, you pour out your heart to the Lord. You know what else He does? He sends to the prophet. Why does he send to the prophet? Because the prophet spoke God's word. And in the old covenant, that word is infallible, right? Because if a prophet spoke a false word, then they were to be stoned. That's how serious and holy the office was. And so he sends to the prophet 
Because he wants to know what the word of the Lord will be to him. See how he prioritizes the word of God? He prioritizes uh, repentance before the Lord and, and prayer, pouring out his heart before the Lord, being in the presence of God and the word of God because he needs that for life. If there's going to be any hope, it's going to be in God's presence and in God's word. The scriptures. The very thing you're doing right now by coming to the Bible, coming to hear the preaching of God's Word. And when you go in your quiet time, when you close your prayer closet, and you open the Scriptures. When you go to a small group, and you go to a care group, and you open them together, and you try to understand how they apply to life better. The very thing. This is trusting God. Trust may feel complex and hard at times, and it, and it can be hard to trust the Lord, but it's really kind of simple in its application. It's repentance, and it's prayer, and it's the Scriptures. It's calling on the Lord, the Lord Jesus, and it's the Scriptures that make us wise into salvation. Now, one more note here before we move on. Look, at me with, uh, look with me at the slide, and you're going to see, and I'm sorry about the way that that slide is. I know it's a terrible it's not good formatting. Anyone who cares about production right now is looking at this and saying, that's, a, that's an abomination. I can't even read this. So, the design is terrible. It's my fault. Overlook that design flaw. Because I want to compare these two scriptures. I want to show you. Look at the first one. This comes from the passage we read early on in chapter 36. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh uh, from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And then if, if we go back, do you remember? Early in chapter 7, Isaiah is sent out with his son to confront King Ahaz, the king who didn't trust God. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear-Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. What's happening here? What's happening here? On the exact spot where Isaiah had earlier called Ahaz to trust the Lord, now Hezekiah is being tr called to trust the Lord. The Rabshakeh, the emissary of uh, uh, Sennacherib, has come to challenge Hezekiah and all the people of Judah and their trust in God. The exact spot. What's that about? That's about God giving us a reminder. He is providentially arranging all of this. He has set it up so. You see it? It's purposeful. It's entirely, it's without question providential. God working behind what's seen and all that's happening. Working, working, working. Always working for the good of His people. No matter what they're experiencing, He's always working. The exact spot He's saying, remember this, people? Remember? Remember how you're supposed to trust me last time? Remember how you didn't do that? Here we are again. The same spot in life. Here we are. You might find that in your life. You might find yourself saying, here I am again, here I am again with this complaint, with this complaint against God, with what He set up in my life, with what's going on around me, with these things I don't like, with these complaints that I have, with all these things I want to change. Here I am again. And God's, God's behind it. God's behind it. He's saying, see, see, here we are again. Will you trust me this time? This time? Will you trust me? I want you to learn to trust me. Now is your chance to trust me. Learn to trust me. Here we are again. Learn to trust the Lord now so that you're able to trust Him always. Secondly, let's take a look at some of the ongoing lessons. And actually, I, I word that wrong because it's not ongoing lessons. It's, that, it's the idea that the lessons are ongoing. The lessons are ongoing, okay? So we're left off at this point where Hezekiah has gone to the temple and Isaiah has spoken. And we saw that Hezekiah did trust Yahweh. 
And the Lord, he trusted the Lord. Well, Yahweh is the Lord. So he trusts the Lord. And now we see, we're going to see that the Lord does exactly as he says he's going to do. But we're also going to see that the lesson in trust is not over for Hezekiah. It's not over for Hezekiah. You would think that one lesson would be enough. It's a pretty big lesson. You know, hundreds of thousands of Assyrian soldiers hungry for the spoils of war within a day or two's march of your wall. Seems like a pretty good lesson. But God, in His good providence, working behind the scene, knows what His people need, doesn't He? And He knows what you and I need. So turn to Isaiah chapter 37. I'll I'll read to you verses 8 to 13. Verses 8 to 13. The Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, not Lachish now, Libna. For he had heard that the king had left Lachish. Now the king heard concerning uh, Terhaka, king of Cush, he has set out to fight against you. And when he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah, saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard what the king of Assyria, Assyri- kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction. And shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Rezeph, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath? the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva. And so, what's happening here is Cush, or Egypt, is coming up into Palestine, into the land of the Philistines, to fight against Assyria. And so, when Sennacherib hears this, he leaves Lachish, and he goes to fight against the Egyptians. And history tells us that they swept them away. But in the meantime, the people of Judah may have first been elated, right? Oh, this is great. And actually, Isaiah chapter 22, if you were to go back there and look at it, you would see that there's a time where they have this premature rejoicing. And that probably speaks of this moment here, that they're all excited. But what does Sennacherib do? He sends a letter to Hezekiah basically restating everything that the Rabshakeh has already said. And so this time, it's again, Hezekiah, will you trust the Lord? You know, is he going to hedge his bets? Is he going to hire mercenaries? Is he going to hope that Egypt, Egypt somehow beats Assyria? What's he going to put his trust in? There's the question again. And the Christian life is like this, isn't it? Because it's not trusting once. It's not about something that God's done in you a long time ago. It's not that one time you trusted Him and you saw Him provide and and work things out and it was amazing. No, no, the Christian life is learning to trust Him always because the Christian life is for His glory. As we sang, our lives for His glory. Well, they're only for His glory if we're trusting Him always. Trusting Him fully, trusting Him more, trusting Him through life. The Lord Jesus is calling us to trust Him always. Think about, think about forgiveness. It's kind of like forgiveness. How many times are we called to forgive someone who has wronged us and asks for forgiveness? The disciples ask Him, seven times, Lord? That seems like a lot. That seems excessive. seems pretty gracious. We know we've been forgiven a lot. So yeah, seven times. No, Jesus says, 70 times seven. In other words, don't count it. Always. There's no limit. It's always. Christians are always to have a stance of forgiveness to those that come and ask forgiveness. When they recognize that they've wronged you, we're to be ready to forgive. Not to have a heart of retribution, but to have a stance that's ready to forgive. Why? Because we've been forgiven more than we can comprehend. We've been forgiven an almost infinite amount. His grace is greater than our sin. And this way, when that offender comes and seeks forgiveness, we're ready to give it. That's what's different about the Christian. 
And in the meantime, since we have that stance, we're not bitter. We're not cynical. We're not uh, hateful. We're not angry. We're not plotting our revenge. But we're satisfied. We're hopeful. We're content. We're joyful. And the same is true with trusting the Lord. It's not once and done. And it's not seven times that we trust Him. It's always. It's who we are. It's our life. It flows from us. It's what the Spirit is working in us. It's what God is teaching us day by day. And it's why God is so committed to teaching us this lesson through, our, the, through the course of our entire lives. To always have faith in Him. And to never doubt. And we need to keep learning it. We need to keep learning it now and always. Again, Hezekiah trusts the Lord. He trusts the Lord again, and this is a glorious thing. Because when we turn from trusting ourselves or any other false god, well, that's different. Just think about that for a moment. When you and I turn from trusting ourselves, when we turn from trusting any other god, when we turn from trusting political parties or political processes, when we turn from trusting the history of, of our nation, when we turn from trusting our ethnicity as where we find our identity, when we turn from trusting our finances as the place of security, when we turn from, tr- from trusting our reputation, our network, our, our promotions, our employment, when we turn from trusting our family to be the strength of who we are, when we turn from trusting our relational skill, when we turn from trusting our shrewdness, when we turn from trusting our intelligence, our academic prowess, when we turn from trusting our strength, when we turn from trusting any of these things. It is counter-cultural. It is radical in this world. It is a powerful testimony to the trustworthiness of our Savior Jesus Christ. That's what the Lord's called us to do. And Hezekiah is going to trust God. He's going to pray a powerful prayer beautiful prayer. It's an example for us. If you're struggling to trust the Lord, open up to Isaiah 37 verses 14 to 20. Read his prayer. Uh, Contemplate it. Meditate on it. And you'll grow in trust. Turn to Isaiah chapter 37 verses 14 to 20. Isaiah 37 verses 14 to 20. Hezekiah received from the letter We see the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods. But the work of men's hands, wood and stone, therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. What does Hezekiah do? You you see that mournful, that sorrow, right? That, that, That repentant spirit. But he goes to the temple, and, and you get the sense he spreads the letter. You can almost seem like spreading the letter before the Lord. Like, Lord, Lord, do you see these words? Do you see that what's here? It's almost like he's saying that, right? And, 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 and what would the Lord, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've got it. I've read it. I've got it. And this prayer that, that comes through is, you know, part of what he's saying is, Yahweh, you're enthroned and all the earth belongs to you. Now think of what he's saying for a moment, okay? Judah's decimated. Judah's gone at this point. Now they're going to get it back. But it's overrun. The only portion of Judah left is Jerusalem, which is about 15 acres. 15 acres. That's less than a third of what we have here. It's less than a quarter of what we have. Right? A quarter? Right? What's a quarter? 60. Yeah. We have 76 acres. 
by the grace of God. Amazing. All that's left is Jerusalem. It's almost like Yahweh's territory, in terms of the way the world thinks about gods and territory, is 15 acres on the entire earth. That's how it looks to them. So why wouldn't Sennacherib feel his strength, his oats, his, his boast? The Syrians all over the earth are taking over everything. But who spoke the truth and who spoke the lies? Hezekiah spoke the truth and gave God the glory for the truth. No matter what it looked like on the outside, all of this belongs to God. And you see what's important here? You see what's important? You see, it's, it, it's, it's not always what we express when everything's going well, when all of our needs are provided for and life is pretty good. You know, we have challenges here or there. It's what we believe when our entire world is shaken and it feels like it's completely fallen apart, when it's all torn away from us. It seems like there's nothing left that we care about. And, and it's just all gone. That's when we have to trust the Lord. Are you in that place today? Are you in that place today? Now's the time. Now's the time. It's, it's not another time. It's now to trust Him. God in His goodness is He's teaching you. He's teaching you to trust Him now. You can trust Him now. Hezekiah learned that. We learn that too. Scripture, Hezekiah calls him a living God. Living God isn't often used in the Old Testament. And when used, it's, it's this idea that this is a God who, yeah, he, he doesn't have eyes, but he sees. He doesn't have ears, but he hears. He's not a man, but he, he knows. And, and this is in juxtaposition with the, with the man-made gods. They carve them out. With the, they have eyes, and they have ears, and they have noses, they have mouths. But they don't speak, they don't hear, they don't understand, they don't listen. They can't see. Because they're not gods. And that's the way everything in this world, everything that the world's running after, that, that's, what those things, that's what those things are. They're, they're not gods. They're held up as gods. They're held up as all important. But they're not. And so that, that comes back to us again, right? And, We've talked a lot about gods of this world over the years and we'll continue to talk about such a major biblical theme, but it comes back to this idea, are you and I going to worship the, the, the maker, the one who made us, or will we worship what we've made with our own hands? Will we worship the maker or will we worship what we make? And that logic's pretty straightforward, isn't it? doesn't make any sense to worship what we make. It only makes sense to worship the maker. And, now, and, and, then, and then Hezekiah goes on to say, You're the living God. Please deliver us from his hand. Why deliver us from his hand? So that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the only God. You see, it's all about God's glory. And, and that's the connection. Sometimes we, 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 we ponder that. It can be hard to understand uh, how I'm... Everything about God's... God's interested in His own glory and He's made us for His own glory. It's hard to understand that sometimes. And it's hard to understand how to live in such a way that God receives glory from us. But this is how you do it. When we don't trust Him, we're not living for His glory. And it, and it goes back to what we learn about salvation, right? Salvation's it's by grace not by works, so that no one may boast. See, if we're not trusting Him, we think we've got something to boast about. We've carved this little light over here in our lives, and, and we're like, oh, that's pretty great. And we think we have something to boast about. And God's saying, burn that, throw it away, trust me, and as you do, your life is about my glory. And with our lives, we're not called to create our own kingdoms, but we're to live as part of His kingdom for His Glory. So let's see the Lord's response here. The Lord's response comes mostly in the form of a poem. Again, I'm, 
I'm glad to be able to read all the scripture to us today. So Isaiah chapter 37, verses 21 through 29. Verse 21 through 29. Then Isaiah the son of Amos said to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken concerning him. She despises you, she scorns you, the virgin daughter of Zion. She wags her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have mocked and reviled, against whom you have raised your voice and lifted your eyes to the heights, against the Holy One of Israel. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you have said, with, many, with my many chariots I have gone up to the heights of the mountains, to the far recesses of Lebanon, to cut it down, its tallest cedars, its choicest cypresses, to come to its remotest height, its most fruitful forest. I dug wells and drank waters to dry up with the sole of my foot all the streams of Egypt. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old what now I bring to pass, that you should make fortified cities crash into heaps of ruins, while their inhabitants, shorn of strength, are dismayed and confounded, and have become like plants of the field and like tender grass, like grass on the housetops, blighted before it is grown. I know you're sitting down, and you're going out and coming in, and you're raging against me. Because you have raged against me and your complacency has come to my ears. I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. You see, God says to his enemies, Sennacherib, you don't know who you're messing with. I'm the one that brought you here, made you so successful. And now because of your pride, I'm going to treat you like a fish. I'll put a hook in you. Or I'm going to treat like a horse. I'll put a bit in your mouth. And I'm going to lead you back home. Somewhat ashamed. Because everything you've done has been for my glory and at my command. And so that I could purify my people and teach them to trust me. Every single thing. And so let's see what happened. Go to verse 33 through 37. And let's get the end of the story. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. By the way he came, the same way he shall return. And he shall not come into this city, declares the Lord, for I will defend the city to save it for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. And the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. Oh, I didn't read the end of you. He goes home, 19 years later, he's worshiping in the house of his own God. And isn't this ironic? He's in, he's in his temple, an idol that can't hear, speak, think, perceive, understand, see. And his own sons come in and kill him. And you know what the scripture says? They get away. They get away. There's, a, there's not, not even any justice for Sennacherib. Murdered by his sons in the house of an idol. What a terrible ending. We don't want that ending, do we? Dying in the house of an idol? And so, yes, this is what happens. Uh, the, it, and the Hebrew is really terse here. It's just basically like God goes out and kills 185,000 of them. And what happens is they have a problem at home and they have to return home and Sennacherib never attacks Jerusalem. So he faced the ultimate punishment for his arrogance against the Lord. But that's not the way the Lord treats his people. Look at this and, and with this will be ending. Verses 30 to 32 of chapter 37. Isaiah 37 verses 30 to 32. 
And this shall be the sign for you. This year you shall eat what grows of itself, and in the second year what springs from that. Then in the third year sow and reap and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. And the surviving remnant of the house of Judah shall again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem shall go a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You know, in this moment, you know what's happening here is, is God saying, listen, this year you're going to eat just what's already been planted. Next year you'll eat again, just kind of what grows of itself. But three years from now, things will return to normal. You will plant your own fields and reap your own harvest. Isn't that amazing? God's saying, don't worry, I've got it. You're going to be provided for. Here's what's going to happen. And you almost want to say, God, these people have been so rebellious, so stubborn, so idolatrous. They they have failed to trust you so much. Are you really going to be that merciful? And God says, yes, yes, because they're my people and I love them. I've raised them up for my glory and in my glory I love them. And isn't that how he's treated us as well? Have you been foolish? Have you failed to trust him? Do you have idols? Are you living in the house of that idol now? Are you not trusting him today? Turn to him. Turn to him. Because he limits his consequences. You see, the Lord always limits his consequences to his people. To his people, those that belong to him, he limits the consequences to us. Just like a good father. He doesn't, when he has to discipline his child, there's consequences, but he doesn't destroy his child. Not if he's a loving father, he doesn't destroy them, doesn't harm them. He gets their attention, maybe with a spanking. Or maybe by taking something away, some form of discipline. He gets their attention so that they learn what's right and good versus what's wrong and unrighteous. And God's the best father. He doesn't bring us consequences to destroy us. He brings us consequences so that we learn to trust him. Except for one time. Except for one time. Because when the Son of God came and he went to the cross, climbed the hill of Golgotha outside the city of Jerusalem, with the cross on his back. It was not for his sin that he carried that cross, was it? It was for ours. And when he hung on that cross and the Father poured out consequences of sin, he did not limit them. But he poured out on him the full wrath that sin deserves, not because he deserved it, but because it's what we would get if he didn't provide for us. And that's why we ought to trust him. Because he's already poured out his destructive wrath on sin, but for us it's been paid for. Now, if you have not yet trusted the Lord Jesus, then that wrath is still in store for you. But the moment you trust Him, you come out from the wrath of God and you become someone for whom Jesus Christ has suffered the full wrath of God to His death so that He might be raised again and defeat death. And in Him, you have forgiveness and new life. My dear friends, Learn to trust the Lord now so that you are able to trust Him. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.